Will we see a scary tipping point by 2025? And where did the U.S. build its first nuclear power plant in three decades? It's time for this week's Climate Recap. Hit the subscribe button below if you want to stay updated on the climate crisis and clean energy transition. World Weather Attribution researchers released an analysis finding that, unsurprisingly, human-induced climate change played a large role in the extreme heat we saw around the world last month. The WWA was formed in 2015 to determine how climate change has influenced the intensity and likelihood of certain extreme weather events using weather observation and climate modeling. It partners with the Imperial College London, the Royal Netherlands Meteorological Institute, and the Red Cross Red Crescent Climate Center. It's becoming a great tool for journalists to cover how climate change impacts the events we often experience. In this analysis, the WWA found that climate change made China's heat wave 1 degree Celsius hotter, southern Europe 2.5 degrees hotter, and North America 2 degrees hotter than they would have been without increased emissions. Without climate change, the heat wave in China would have only happened once every 250 years, and the North American heat wave would have been virtually impossible. If the planet warms to 2 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels, we could see these heat waves every 2 to 5 years. Overall, July was very likely the hottest month in recorded human history, and 2023 might very well become the hottest year we've seen yet. While this news is disturbing, a different study took the award for the most terrifying study to come out in the last four weeks, especially with all the news coverage it's gotten. The study, published in the journal Nature Communications, sees climate change causing the Atlantic Meridional Overturning Circulation, or AMOC, to slow down and weaken at a faster rate than scientists originally thought. AMOC is a global oceanic conveyor belt that transports warm, salty water from the tropics to the North Atlantic, which then cools and sinks to go back down south. An influx of cold fresh water from the rapidly melting Arctic is knocking the circulation out of rhythm. Without this circulation, weather patterns would get stuck for longer in one place, something we're already seeing now for heat waves and snowstorms alike. A study published in 2021 found that the AMOC has already slowed down by 15% since the 1950s, making it the slowest it's been in 1,200 years. At a certain point, AMOC could permanently switch to a new normal, making it a fragile global tipping point to watch out for. This system collapse inspired the 2004 Day After Tomorrow movie, which heavily dramatized what will happen. This shift will cause Northern Europe to become more like Alaska and the tropics to have little relief from the heat. It would also cause stronger storms in the eastern U.S. But how fast a mock could shift is up for debate among scientists. This most recent paper suggests a mock could shift anytime from 2025 to 2095. That's a big range, and the paper's authors from the University of Copenhagen gave it a low probability that the a mock will shift during the earlier part of that range. This study is also at odds with the latest United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or IPCC's, report, which gave medium confidence that the AMOC wouldn't shift until the end of the century. The studies use slightly different methodologies to come up with their conclusions, and if you want to learn more about those methods, I'll link the articles on the topic in the source list for further reading. Overall, scientists seem pretty split on when they think this shift would happen, but all their reports rely on global emissions continuing at their current trajectory, which is something that humans can still influence. This tipping point is not set in stone, and it just further emphasizes the need for immediate emissions reduction. 
The third most emitting country, India, announced in June that it will pause building new coal-fired power plants in the next five years to instead prioritize its clean energy transition. India gets about three-fourths of its energy from coal right now, but has a goal of reaching net zero emissions by 2070. Every five years, the most populous country comes up with its energy goals. And while it still has coal plants in the works that were already approved, it decided instead of building 8,000 megawatts of new coal capacity by 2027, it would invest in building out more than 8,600 megawatts of battery storage to provide clean energy 24-7. Solar will be a huge source of energy generation for India in the future. And because the country is experiencing longer, hotter summers than it used to, most energy demand is now during the day to keep cool. The perfect time for solar to take over the demand. Overall, India plans to install 550 gigawatts of clean energy by 2030, which means it would need to increase how much it installs from 17 gigawatts a year to 40 to 45 gigawatts a year to reach that goal. Do you like what you're hearing so far? If so, consider subscribing to this channel. And if you're on Twitch, I stream news like this every Tuesday and Friday at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. All the info can be found in the description below. Now back to the news. Canada became the first G20 country to release a framework for phasing out inefficient fossil fuel subsidies. G20 countries promised to do this all the way back in 2009. Fulfilling this promise was part of Prime Minister Trudeau's 2022 deal with the New Democrat Party. The framework applies to existing tax measures and 129 non-tax measures. We don't know much more specifics because Ottawa hasn't published an inventory on which subsidies would be impacted or put a dollar value on it. Unfortunately, there's a lot of loopholes for fossil fuels to avoid losing subsidies too. Fossil fuel activities will be exempt from the framework if they fall into one of these six categories. Enabling significant carbon emissions reductions, supporting clean energy, providing essential energy to a remote community or short-term support for an emergency response, supporting indigenous participation in fossil fuel activities or our projects that have a credible plan to reach net zero by 2030. For that last one, the framework puts a lot of faith in carbon capture and storage technology effectively decarbonizing fossil fuel processes, despite the growing body of research showing CCS projects fail to capture as much as they claim. The framework also doesn't apply to public financing of fossil fuel projects through government-owned crown corporations, but a framework tackling that financing is expected to be released next year. Speaking of relying on carbon capture and storage for decarbonization, Britain's Prime Minister Sunak has now stated that even though Britain has a goal of reaching net zero emissions by 2050, he believes a quarter of the energy the country will use by mid-century will come from fossil fuels. I'm sorry, but there's no way to describe that beyond delusional. In that vein, Sunak committed Britain to more than 100 oil and gas extraction leases in the North Sea starting in the fall, claiming it'll increase energy independence and be less emissions in than importing liquefied natural gas. Sunak said hundreds of more leases could also be granted in the near future. He also announced support for two new CCS clusters in Scotland and Northern England. Climate activists accused Sunak of trying to greenwash the new extraction leases with the announcement of the carbon capture facilities, which couldn't take up enough to make up for the amount of new emissions created by these projects. Oops, I'm sure this has nothing to do with the deal that was recently made. Recent reporting puts Sunak's judgment on energy project decisions more into question. Just two months before this lease announcement, the Indian IT giant Infosys signed a $1.5 billion deal with BP. Sunak's wife's family partially owns Infosys. 
In the U.S., the Interior Department recently proposed a rule that would increase how much money energy companies must pay to lease public lands for oil and gas production from 12.5% royalties to 16.67%. Acres must cost at least $10 instead of originally $2. Jeez, that's still cheap. What would be less cheap is that the minimum lease bond would go up from $10,000 minimum to $150,000 minimum. About time, because it's been only $10,000 since the 1960s. Inflation has happened since then. This matters because bonds are used as collateral for cleaning up a site after a fossil fuel company is done destroying it. For a while now, taxpayers have had to foot the bill because the bond was so cheap. And usually companies would just go bankrupt so they don't have to pay for it at all. The new rule would also give the Bureau of Land Management more power to project projects near sensitive ecosystems and cultural sites. The proposed rule is now up for public comment, and environmental groups seem split on approving this move or considering it too little too late, because it doesn't block drilling on public lands. It just makes it slightly more inconvenient. The Biden administration also just broke ground on an important transmission line that will transport energy from North America's largest wind farm located in rural Wyoming to large West Coast cities like Las Vegas and L.A. The Chokecherry and Sierra Madre wind project cost $5 billion and its 600 turbines will generate 3,000 megawatts starting in 2027. It's located in Carbon, Wyoming, which used to be a coal mining hub before the mine shut down. Many people in the town are excited for the new jobs the wind farm will develop. The TransWest Express Transmission Project will run 732 miles through northwestern Colorado and central Utah to southern Nevada, interconnecting with other power systems along the way. The construction will create more than 1,000 jobs. Georgia Power Co., a subsidiary of Southern Co., announced that Unit 3 of Plant Vogel is officially in commercial operation, making it the first nuclear plant to join the U.S. grid in three decades. It will generate 1,100 megawatts to power about 500,000 homes and businesses. Utilities in Georgia, Florida, and Alabama will receive the electricity along with 2.7 million Georgia Power customers. Unfortunately, this energy addition will cost residents $4 more a month because of how much over budget these projects went. Unit 3, which started to be built back in 2009, was originally supposed to be completed in 2016. Unit 4 will add to this cost too, which is expected to be up and running around March 2024. The two units were supposed to cost $14 billion, but instead they ended up costing $35 billion. Experts testifying before the commission said that the construction cost went so over budget that it wiped out any future benefit from low nuclear fuel costs. People close to the project also criticized the utility company of forcing the excess cost on consumers while it reaped the profits from the project. For example, this is how a Southern Environmental Law Center staff attorney describes this situation in a statement. Quote, While capital-intense and expensive projects may benefit Georgia Power shareholders who have enjoyed record profits through Vogel's beleaguered construction, they are not the least cost option for Georgians who are feeling the sting of repeated bill increases. Yikes. It'll be up to commissioners to determine if they'll let Georgia Power Co. get away with this. Southern Co. says it doesn't plan to make any more large nuclear power plants after these projects. Most U.S. companies are banking on small nuclear reactor technology to avoid these cost hikes and construction timeline delays in the future, as nuclear is becoming more recognized as a carbon-free, consistent form of energy. I never thought we'd actually 
get a solution to this next story that I first covered in May of 2022. That's the decaying Yemen oil tanker that's been stranded off Yemen's Red Sea coast for the last 30 years. The UN recently announced that it began removing oil from the tanker to avoid an environmental catastrophe. Let's back up so I can explain this drama. The old ship off Yemen is ironically called the FSO Safer. It was built in 1976 and it can carry 1.14 million barrels of oil. That's four times as much oil as the Exxon Valdez spilled off Alaska in 1989. Yemen tried to maintain it in 2015, but a war with the Saudi-led coalition prevented it from doing so. A little complicated, but what matters now is that it could leak at any minute or even explode, and that would cause a severe environmental and humanitarian disaster. The fishing industry along that coast would be ruined in a country that already needs way more humanitarian aid than it's getting. The coastline environments like coral reefs and mangrove forests will die, and the cleanup cost is estimated to be $20 billion. Early in 2022, the UN appealed to the international community for $144 million to offload the decaying Yemen oil tanker before it breaks. I guess it got the money because the UN sent a ship called Yemen to suck the oil out of the safer. They've already started the process. Thank heavens. I can't wait for oil spills to be a thing of the past, don't you? And that was your climate recap for the week. If you found this information useful, please like and share this video so more people can see it. Remember to talk about the climate crisis every single day and to support your local news organizations. Thank you so much to the people on Patreon who helped support me and my fur baby, Rue. A special shout out to the climate confident and courageous David H., Norman Anal, Greg H., Paul B., Phil Plasma, Dan Morton, Nate, Specker, Bree C., Climate Teacher John J., Deanne, Steve, Kevin Morton, and SKP Joe Korsgold. I greatly appreciate your support of $5 or more. If you would like to support the Becca Sphere, please check out the Patreon and buy me a coffee links in the description below for reoccurring or one-time payments. Bye for now.